Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. At Columbia University, I teach linguistics. And actually, to my delight, they also let me teach philosophy, music history, and if you expand the definition somewhat, American studies. I have written some books on language, and I have two more of them coming out soon. In January, Talking Back, Talking Black on Black English, and earlier in the fall, Words on the Move, Why English Can't and Won't Sit Still Like Literally, which I'm actually in the process of recording the audiobook for, which is a stupefyingly monotonous process. But today, I am honored to be guest hosting Lexicon Valley for the summer, and my guest this week is none other than Gretchen McCullough, who is one of our most prominent public linguists. After a while, we linguists who take upon ourselves the endeavor of sharing this weird subject with the real world all seem to end up meeting each other, and Gretchen, we met, what, last fall at the polyglot conference, right? Yeah, last fall in New York City when I was down for the polyglot conference. That's right. That was a nice afternoon. In any case, Gretchen is the author of the fine blog, All Things Linguistic, which she manages to refresh every day. And she has more to say than I do about, among other things, language and this thing called the internet. Gretchen is well-equipped to answer a particular question that linguists now field all the time. I've done a few pieces about the topic of this question coming, and Gretchen, I am now going to, nope, I want to say your name properly. I've done a few pieces about the topic of this question coming, and Gretchen, I'm now going to throw it at you because you have written a great deal about it. Let's kick this off with the eternal query that a linguist gets at any party and from the media probably about once every two or three weeks. Here it comes. Will emojis replace language? Bet you never heard that one before. I, I oh never. Only only a couple hundred times probably. <laughs> <laughs> so are they are they a threat? What what's interesting about emojis? To tell you the truth, I'm gonna let you a little secret is that when people first started asking me about emojis, I kind of thought, I don't care about them. And I've gotten past that. But will these things be replacing language? Is there something about them that we haven't seen already? No. And I think that's a common misconception. And I wrote a piece about it uh, for the Toast recently. But it's really kind of doom-mongering hyperbole to say that emoji are going to replace language. But I think it comes, John, from this 
confusion that people have about what language really consists of. Mm -hmm. Because we often use the word language loosely. And I don't want to say people are wrong about that because I'm a descriptivist, but I think it causes confusion when we use language to refer to any kind of means of communicating, mm. um, body language or, you know, the language of interpretive dance or something like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, we can uh, communicate with emoji. Nobody thinks that you can't communicate uh, with emoji. You can convey things like happiness and sadness and, you know, delight at seeing a cute kitty um, with emoji, to use a few examples of things I've said recently. But just because you can communicate with something doesn't mean that it's language the way English is a language, the way French is a language, the way Japanese is a language. Right. And thinking that emoji are a threat to English comes from a conflation of these two ideas that we have with what constitutes language. Mm -hmm. So we can communicate with emoji, and in some senses, emoji are a more universal way of communicating because happiness and sadness and cats are things the universal concepts are you well i mean presu presumably there could cats. exist a human society without cats but let's <laughs> say could. that if you have cats you recognize a picture of cats right but in that sense emoji are are universal communication only the way that pointing and stuff and grunting is universal communication mm -hmm. you can communicate a certain amount of stuff by pointing and grunting and waving your hands around a bit. And if you've been a tourist in a foreign country where you didn't speak the language and you had to convey something, you could figure out a way to do it with improvised gestures. Right. But nobody asked whether pointing and tipping your head are on their way to taking over language. But somehow people seem to feel that way when it's these little drawings. What do you think the difference might be? Exactly. I think one of the reasons is that emoji look like they compete with language because they look like little pictures. They fit in a little line mm -hmm. on the page beside letters. And we kind of like the idea of writing in pictures. It's a cute notion. And then, of course, we think of the Chinese as doing it, even though they don't necessarily. Exactly. We think of other writing systems that aren't our own as maybe being like pictures, even though they have a lot more subtle meaning. Of course. But the thing about the idea, and, and there's this idea that because emoji are so easy, and because we remember our struggles with learning a foreign language in school, yeah, yeah. that maybe emoji could be this easy way mm. to communicate with each other right. that wouldn't require us to memorize verb conjugations or yeah. lists of Enticing, vocabulary exactly. or things like this. Yeah, and that's interesting because really, it's not that they're going to take over because, frankly, it would be impractical for emojis to take over all of what language has to communicate. Rather, most of it is attitudinal. And in that, I find them interesting in that they illustrate the pragmatic side of language, which we're not often taught about when we're taught grammar. We're taught that grammar is the past tense and marking things as plural and all these things we're supposed to not do, like say less books instead of fewer books. But we're not told that grammar is also, if you say something like, um, she even had a horse. Well, what's the even? Well, it conveys a certain aspect of presupposition and attitude. Emojis give you a way of doing that with pictures, but nobody thinks that we're going to start saying, well, anyway, like I don't know, which would be all pragmatics. And yet emojis look like they're going to spread further in some way. Well, and that's the thing is emoji are actually not very good at this kind of grammatical stuff that language mm -hmm. does. It's hard to tell, you know, if I have 
something like happy face, dog emoji, does that mean the dog is good or I like dogs <laughs> or the dog is happy? Like we don't have – we have these individual core concepts with emoji, but we don't have a good way of structuring them and showing their relationships to each other. And that's something that language is very good at. Yeah. Have you seen the the emoji dick, which is supposed to be Moby Dick, except all in emojis? It's delightful in its way, but nobody could possibly get anything out of it without yeah, I, knowing Moby Dick before. And I think that you know, I think it gets a lot of attention and I think it's a really cool art project. I like art projects, but I don't think it's really linguistic. So <laughs> The first line of Emoji Dick, if I'm recalling correctly, is something like telephone, whale, sailboat, man, okay <laughs> sign with the fingers. Call me Ishmael. Right. Um, and, you know, wh- what do you think that means? <laughs> Depending on where you are in the world or even as an English speaker. Well, even yeah, as exactly. an English speaker. That's supposed to stand for this iconic opening line of Moby Dick, <laughs> which is call me Ishmael. Right. And – I, I can get from those symbols that this is something about a boat. This story is about a boat and a whale and a man. <laughs> but I can't get from those symbols the actual line, call me Ishmael. What? Whereas oh, if I ahead. translate Moby Dick into French, I can get something like, appelez-moi Ishmael. That <laughs> works fine for me. You know, that's, yeah. that's equivalent to that. You make a really good point somewhere. I, I read you around, and I forget where this was, where you said that Theoretically, we could agree on certain more complex things that emojis could mean, you know, lots of rebuses and lots of arbitrary meanings where everybody would be schooled in what all of these smiles and dogs and fists and eggplants meant. But once we had that, we would have a system that was as I'm going to I have to speak carefully, magnificent, but as clumsy and difficult to learn and accidental as Chinese. And why would we want to recreate that? As something now, as opposed to Chinese, which happened gradually because of history and sticks around because of tradition. I thought that was a very good point. Yeah, that's a point that I made in the in the Toast article, which I'm sure we can link to uh, after the podcast. Is that in the Toast piece? Okay, everybody. That's should in read the that. Toast piece as yeah. well. So everybody should just go read that, and we'll we'll link to that on social media. I assume I can promise this. Um, <laughs> yes, we could make a a system. Of rebuses, you could use a log emoji to stand for a log. You could use the cat emoji to stand for cat. And you could combine those and get catalog. Mm -hmm. That'd be very elegant. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing is, is we already have systems that do this. The English alphabet, for example, started out by standing for names of stuff. So Aleph, Alpha, comes from the Phoenician word for ox, which which began with an Aleph sound. And it does that. Really, all of the writing systems that we have um, started in some degree as a representation of some sort of literal thing. They and have then to start we quickly realized yeah. that we wanted to develop these abstract meanings, and different systems did it in different sorts of ways. English went um, towards a lot of sounds, whereas other systems, uh, like Chinese, has a combination of sounds and, and meanings. Mm-hmm. But they all develop this sort of abstraction because you need to be able to distinguish between the dog is good and I like the dog and the dog exactly. is happy. You can't just say dog happy face. Right. That's not abstract enough for what we actually want to be able to say. And for these things to convey the abstract, you have to have certain agreed upon conventions, which are rather arbitrary. And next thing you know, what you've got is more difficult than cute. And so, yeah, emojis are, are wonderful, but I think I think we both agree that nobody needs to worry that those little faces are going to be breaking through our fences and taking well, over our lives. 
And the thing is, the appealing part about emojis as universal is that you don't have to learn them. But (laughs) if you want to communicate abstraction, it has to be something you've learned. It has to be something that you've figured out how to assign this arbitrary meaning to this arbitrary sequence of sounds or gestures or, uh, or symbols, because that's what abstraction is. It's not something that can be instantly automatically conveyed. I think there's a second and related kind of logical fallacy that people have as well, which is that if only everybody could communicate, then we'd just get along. Oh, of course that. Because I call it the common language equals peace fallacy. (laughs) Because, and I think if you think about this a little bit longer, it really becomes apparent how, how weird it is because civil wars are a thing. Yes. And everybody is speaking the exact same language often. And everyone is speaking the same language and they understand each other perfectly well, only to know that they hate each other. (laughs) Exactly. And you could even say that to the extent that English is the closest thing the world has to a universal language, it would be hard to say that current conditions suggest that that language in common makes people get along. It seems to rather have nothing to do with whether or not people. I mean, yeah, all all English speakers do not agree with each other. Even in a family, you have you can have an argument within a marriage or something where you speak the same language, but you don't get along. If emojis are not going to take over, then there's the rest of this topic, which I believe you are writing a book on, Internet Language. And so people ask, what is the Internet doing to language? And it's interesting because when people say language, I think often they're working off of an assumption that language is writing in the same way as you say, well, he drinks. You don't mean lemonade. You mean alcohol. When people say language, I think they mean writing, although I suppose you could say that the Internet has something to do with the way people talk. But Internet language, what is Internet language and what does one say about it? You talk about something called the Internet era, and I assume you mean this in a language sense. What is the Internet doing to language? Ms. Linguist? I think one of the most interesting things about the internet and language is that it's exposing a second domain for writing. We're used to writing as being this very formal thing where you go through an editor and if you want it to reach people, you have to go through a publisher and all of these things in order to reach people and you have all this time for second thought and revision and this type of stuff. But these days, so much writing is happening informally. Mm -hmm. Um, It's happening in texting and tweets and blogs and websites and things like that. It's helped us figure out what things that we thought were characteristics of writing in general are actually just characteristics of being informal or being quick and uh, communicating. So I like to talk about this, and I know, John, that you and other linguists have talked about internet writing as fingered speech or as written down speech. That's right. I like to talk about it in terms of four different kinds of of language, actually. Four? Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. Uh oh. Um, taxonomy. Okay. I, I know. It's a taxonomy. You can think of it like a grid. Lay it um, on me. I love grids. Good. There's formal and informal on the one hand, and they're spoken and written on the other hand. Because, of course, there is formal speech prepared speeches, newscasters, sermons, uh, recited poetry, oral literature, right. oral histories. Exactly. There is a category of formal speech. And yeah. We've kind of some- lost that in modern life, but somebody a hundred years ago or before would be accustomed to attending long, windy, beautifully crafted speeches where that was a, considered a, a performance art in itself. Yeah. I mean, I think I think we do still attend a certain amount of 
uh, formal speeches. Any political speech is probably a formal speech. They're prepared in advance. They're less elaborate, but yes. Less, less elaborate, but, you know, it's still a genre that's familiar to a lot of people. You know, sermons are a good example here as well. Even the kind of talking that we're doing right now, it's a certain amount of a conversation, but it's a little bit more prepared than maybe your average conversation is. Of we're not interrupting course. each other as much as we might. Right. Yeah, this is a public, a public presentation. Yeah. Yeah. So I think when we draw on a formal speech category, it illuminates some of the things that are distinct about informal writing. Exactly. Because exactly. some of the stuff that we think of as characteristic of formal writing is also characteristic of formal speech. Exactly. Being prepared in advance, being edited, being disseminated to a large audience. A lot of these things are characteristics of formal language in general. And that allows you to look at the idea that with informal language, informal language, you can have informal speech, which is what most of us do all the time and is probably the heart of what language is in terms of being a genetic inheritance. And then you have informal writing, which is something that people didn't think about as much or didn't have to think about as much until now. A lot of what we're seeing is informal writing, a writing that's exactly. parallel to speech. Yeah. And it's exactly. a wonderful and thing. And so with informal speech, we want to have this sense of embodiment. We You use your you use your hmm. gestures, you use your tone of voice, you're, you're very aware of someone's physical presence when you're talking to them informally. For mm -hmm. formal speech, not as much, because you, someone tends to be on a stage or behind a podium or something like that. Right. Also right. thinking of actors in plays um, is another example. Um, they tend to be far away from you and you can't see their body as well. Mm. So the fact that with informal writing on the internet, the fact that that means that we use a whole bunch of different types of techniques to make people more aware of the body and make people more aware of the embodiment of our emotions, the embodiment of what we're saying. Which segues us back to you know what. I mean, that, Which that's gets the us em back to emoji. Right, yeah. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the most popular emoji are the face emoji and the hand emoji. <laughs> you know, exactly. people get really excited about adding a dumpling emoji or something, <laughs> but the ones that people use a lot, and I did a study about this with, with SwiftKey, are the, the faces in the hand, the, the ones about the body, the thumbs up, right? Stuff like that. The ones that substitute for the gesture. Gretchen, this is a, a little random sidebar question about the internet and language, especially as it's used now. 20 years ago, it was often said that people don't write letters anymore, physical letters. And that's certainly true. I think the last letter I sat down and wrote cramping up my hand with a pen was probably in 1993. And so, say, in 2003, the idea was no one writes letters, but an awful lot of people were writing long emails. I certainly was. It wasn't that I didn't write letters. If anything, I wrote more letters. It was just that I was using a different technology. I get the sense that with the new generation, and you are younger than me, and so you probably know this better than I do. Long emails have gone out of style. You can tell me if I'm completely wrong, but one texts, and I guess one does various other things, maybe lengthy exchanges, but the five-paragraph email that I was so used to as a 20 and 30-something not so long ago seems to have become kind of like offering somebody bourbon when they come into your house. It's just part of another generation. Am I completely off on that? I mean, well, I still like bourbon, so I don't know. <laughs> so um, <laughs> but I think that um, I think that email in general, people sometimes forget this because we're also deluged by our inboxes at the mm -hmm. moment. But email was really exciting when it started. I people remember liked that. email. It was so much more fun than memos. It was. You, you could, could forward all these chain emails to people. <laughs> yep. 
Um, and they were really funny. Uh, or and kind you can of write faster with your fingers, so you can you say more. You can write faster with your fingers. Yeah. So I think that many platforms get less interesting, less exciting as they get older, and they get taken over by the routine and mundane parts of our lives. Right. Um, so you're the, saying that's what's happened with email? So email itself may be less exciting, although I still exchange long emails with people sometimes. But there are other platforms that people use to write more extended things. I think, you know, Tumblr is a microblogging platform, and no one quite knows what that means. But to some extent, you can just reblog other people's posts, mm -hmm. or you can, but it also gives you a space where you can write longer essays if you want about your favorite yeah. characters on a particular TV show. That's um, true. People write extended series of changed tweets together about particular topics. Mm -hmm. um, people write posts on sites like Medium and stuff if they just have something to say, even sites like Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, if you just have something you want to get off your chest and share with people. At one point, you say that emojis are not the death of a language. Rather, emojis being used with a language is a sign that it's alive. And you say that while you've also talked about how the Internet can help with keeping languages that are dying alive. And one could be a real pessimist and say that most of the world's languages are dying at this point because of modern conditions. And it's often being said these days that we now have new tools that will give many of these languages a better shot. To be honest, I have not been present to see how these new tools would work that way. Have you do, you, do you have a sense of how the internet might help to keep, for example, a dying Native American language alive? I think, I think there's two things that you're actually asking here. One of them is, you know, are these, you know, these languages that are underrepresented on the internet, what's the future of them? Mm -hmm. And I think that if there's, if there's a language that's, I'm going to restart that. Okay. That's actually um, not what I'm asking either. I just, I'm wondering, pardon? I'm wondering whether the internet can save the language, which among its speakers is dying. And that well, language probably is underrepresented on the so internet. The internet itself isn't going to save the language. There's no magical technological fix that's going to, that's going to save a language. A language is saved by people doing stuff with it. But in the context where we're all online these days. A lot mm -hmm. of people are online these days. Right. If a language doesn't have an online presence or if the, an online presence isn't created for a language online, mm -hmm. then it becomes a language that's hard to use in the 21st century. Right. So a language being present online is a symptom of that language being used in 21st century sorts of ways. And you, you could save a language by getting a bunch of speakers and retreating from technology right. and just teaching it to your children and theoretically. Right. Yeah. But if right. you want to integrate a language into modern society, part of modern society is the internet. It doesn't make sense to have a kind of purist attitude of we couldn't possibly use this language on Facebook or we couldn't possibly use this language online because that's not where people are right now. I enjoyed when you were writing about getting your book contract and you used an expression that got me thinking about a couple of things. You wrote, excuse me while I search for my ability to even. <laughs> and I thought that was just beautifully clever because I assume that you're channeling this wonderful expression. I literally can't even that people are using. And I wish I could walk around saying it, but I think it would seem kind of fake. But that word even is always interesting. It's actually kind of an emoji word. And you could say that the even there 
implies shared knowledge. And so if you say, I can't even, you're saying, and correct me if, if, if you feel that I'm wrong, I can't even means I can't express myself on a profound level or an articulate level. As a matter of fact, I can't even speak about this properly. I'm so excited or touched. I can't even rub a noun and a verb together. And that's the nature of even. It implies that you know about all those other gradations up to what you can't even do. Have you ever thought about this new expression with I literally can't even and what it means and why it's become so popular? I think it's related to this phenomenon that I've been calling stylized verbal incoherence mirroring emotional incoherence. Mm -hmm. And what that means in shorter words is when your emotions are unsettled or when you're feeling something that you can't articulate very well, you can communicate with it in this stylized sort of incoherent way. So Mm -hmm. you can use, you know, you can verb nouns. Uh, I recently said, Oh God, I can't even door right now um, because I just fumbled with opening with opening a door. I was I like tired. That. Is you this know. also because X? Well, you could think of because X as related to this as well. Um, as in we we know this because science. Something. We know this because science because we can simplify the explanation into just a form that that seems kind of incoherent, um, which which shows that we don't need. The longer version of we this. don't need it. It's shared knowledge again. Also, it's yeah. shared knowledge, and I mean, shared knowledge is the core of why slang is so important and why slang is uh, is is so much fun. And it's shared different language from incoherence. Yeah, is it, well, shared language is important to people's identity. If I can understand something and you can't, that shows that I'm part of a particular group. Exactly. Um, but this one in particular, I think, is working on. You know, I made this sound incoherent, but I made it sound incoherent like all of the other kinds of incoherence that you've already heard. That's the stylized part. <laughs> so I didn't just do what, you know, I didn't just do word salad. I didn't just scramble the words together in right. no particular order. I scrambled them in a very particular sort of way that refers to a thing that I've seen other people do that I assume people are going to recognize me doing. And I did it in sort of an artful sort of way. That allows people to say, "Ah, yes, you've created a new version of the genre. You've, you've, you've done a, you've done a version of this. I recognize you as part of this community." So, it does this refer to "I literally can't even," or are we going a little broader? Um, it refers to "I can't literally can't even," or "I'm I'm all out of evens." Yeah, uh, I've lost the ability to even. All right. these kinds of. Um, I saw someone talking about you know I'm I'm all out of can. There's a global canning shortage. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to have to put things in bottles now. Maybe I've I've run out of fucks to give, if I may. I've run out of fucks to give. Right. Um, so it's a big field of playing with incoherence, but it's not just any kind of incoherence because we're social creatures, we're we're pattern seeking creatures, and it it's along the lines of a broad pattern that people can recognize. You know what I wonder about that? I think that. As linguists, we're supposed to assume that a hundred years ago, there were equivalents to expressions like these and that we just don't know what they were. There is a parochial little piece of me that 
thinks that flappers, say, in the 20s, were saying all sorts of things. They had names for things. They had expressions. If you read enough Fitzgerald or, you know, re- read enough obscure old novels, you can catch a lot of things that we would never know about now. I wonder if they had an equivalent to this kind of stylized incoherence that you're talking about or whether it has something to do with our times. Maybe it's just a random ripple or maybe it has something to do with the culture. I don't know if you have an answer to that, but well, were there flappers? doing this too with their own expressions? Well, when, once I build my time machine, I'll go back and investigate <laughs> for you. Um, I think that this particular set of type of stylized incoherence is partially facilitated by writing as a, as a place to be informal rather than speaking, mm-hmm. because some parts of the incoherence take an extra half second to think through to make properly incoherent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's harder to do in speech. I mean, I can do some verbing in speech. But if I want to speak in dogue, for example, mm-hmm. I only have a couple examples that I can draw on really quickly. Tell and the audience what dogue is. So dogue is this thing where you have a picture of a Shiba Inu and then you scatter captions around it in things like such animal, very, you know, see, I've run out of the second one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> such animal, uh, very many happy, very <laughs> fur. Wow. Right. Um, and so the idea with Doe is that you have a certain type of incoherence, like many happy or very fur, where you could say in normal English, very happy. Right. You wouldn't say many happy. Right. Um, and it takes an extra couple milliseconds. I haven't measured it. It takes a couple seconds, half second to make that be properly incoherent because it goes against all your instincts as a speaker of English. Right. Right. And I think that's harder to do um, beyond a couple examples that you can have basically memorized. It's harder to do that at the, the pace of speaking that is fascinating. than the pace of writing. Because that means that you can read these things and you can wrap your mind around them with that extra time that it takes. But then once you've got it, maybe you can start tossing these things around in speech because you were able to learn the joke when you read it. But that means this is an example of how the Internet might be even affecting the way we have conversations. Well, and I think there's a simpler example as well. So if you look at internet abbreviations, you know, Uh things like OMG, LOL, WTF, Mm -hmm. these are shorter to type, but they're not in many cases shorter to say WTF is actually Mm -hmm. longer. Yeah, it's clumsy. Um, So in speech, we make stuff shorter by kind of by wearing down letters at the edges of things. So you say kinda instead of kind of or Mm -hmm. I'm a instead of I'm going to. And that's Mm -hmm. how you make stuff shorter in speech. Right. Um, But it doesn't make it a whole lot shorter to type because it still takes almost the same number of letters, (laughs) whereas acronyms are the inverse. They're much shorter to type, but they're not actually shorter to say. So when it comes to what types of efficiency are we optimizing for, we head in different directions in writing versus in speech. It's just that there is, because we are all speakers and writers, there's all this overlap. So we do sometimes say, I'm going to just because... You want to sound like you're speaking, even though it's not that shorter. Or we do say OMG or WTF in speech, even though it's not shorter. Gretchen, you're one of the the public linguists these days who is well-known. And it's kind of a new brand because it used to be that if you were one of the public linguists, it meant unless you were part of a very small group who actually had regular columns, like, say, Jeff Nunberg, or if you want to call him a linguist, William Sapphire, the late William Sapphire, you wrote books 
But books take a while to write, and you probably are not going to be able to crank them out any faster than about once every couple years. Now, a public linguist can blog, can have things to say every day, can be a constant presence. And I think that there's a hope that we can spread this strange subject around and make people understand language a little bit more the way we understand it. And I was wondering, since you've been at it for a while now, do you think that the healthy crop that we have now of public linguists is beginning to make a difference in how the public perceives language, or is there a Sisyphean aspect to this task? I, I hope it's not Sisyphean. Um, God, that's a hard word to say. I've never um, said it till just then. <laughs> and I hope to never again. Um, I hope it's not futile. Let's say futile. Um, I think that I mean, I've heard from people individually who've said, you know, before I started reading your blog or before I started following um, a bunch of linguists on Twitter, I used to be really angry about how different people talked, how kids these days talk or how different, you know, this this thing was wrong. Or I used to not realize that there was all this extra nuance to language that I wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. And and now I've realized there is. And I think it's really cool. Um, or sometimes the younger ones. Now I want to go on and major in linguistics. Now I want to go on and take linguistics. I love those. Those are the ones that make it worth it. Oh, Definitely. those are the best. Um, so I think, but even, you know, you can teach old dogs new tricks as well. I've heard from older people who said, yeah, well, I'm not going back to school, but I think pop linguistics is really cool. <laughs> um, so... I hope that there's a bigger space for it. I think there's definitely more people doing this. You know, you mm-hmm. and I are both doing this and there's a there's a few others of us doing this kind of pop linguist communicating task. I think it's definitely easier to reach people on blogs now than it used to be when you had to get a column. When I was younger, when I before I started blogging, you know, there was language log and a couple other places and that was pretty much Remember it. Remember those days? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and now there's a bunch of different blogs for a bunch of different purposes. I think these are positive trends. I think there's no shortage of interest in language from the public. Mm-hmm. And it's just a responsibility of us as public linguists to try to feed that with real and accurate information and not let it go into just gripe mongering. You know what I think our responsibility is too, also, is to not get too smug. I find that Listening to the public and what the public thinks about language, I learn a lot as well. It's easy for us to say we're the experts and we are going to impart to them our knowledge from on high. But I find sometimes we need to listen more to them. And so, for example, with the new usage of like, which bothers so many people, there is the linguist view, which is that it's a fascinating discourse particle in a book I just wrote. I write about it that way. But the person who's a layman often thinks that it signals a kind of a a hesitation, that people aren't sure about what they're saying. And, you know, Gretchen, there's a tiny part of me that's wondering whether I'm bending over backwards to deny that that usage has something to do with either hesitation in that people don't want to make their point or elsewhere I've said that it's a sign of politeness that people don't want to push their point because they're acknowledging that other people might have valid views and putting like before every sixth or seventh word. Where do you fall on that like and whether it has something to do with something wrong with today's youth or whether you could call it something good? I think that as a linguist, there's a difference between being a linguist who describes language as it is and being someone who advises people on communicative effectiveness. Mm -hmm. So I don't think even as linguists, we want to deny that some people are better public speakers than others. Yeah, we don't deny that. Right. 
Right. And one of the things that might be a characteristic of a really good public speaker is that they don't use a lot of things that signal disfluencies. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because that makes them sound more fluent by tautology because they're being less disfluent. <laughs> and maybe and that's you know not I mean. fair, but unfortunately it won't change. Yeah, I, t- yeah. I definitely tell people do not use like in that way when you're trying to be taken seriously or convey authority or make a point. Yeah, that's yeah, just the way like, it has you know, to be. But I, I don't think that's like's fault in particular. I think that's a characteristic of a whole group of disfluencies, ums and ahs and you knows and, yeah. and you knows. And it's frankly, just them, can I say up talk as in saying statements that sound like questions, uptalk could be part of that set. It's not a disfluency, but it might create the same effect. Or am I wrong there? There's a perception that certain ways of speaking are just morally wrong (laughs) and certain ways of speaking are just good and right. right. And I think it makes sense to talk about ways of speaking as consistent or inconsistent with what your goals are. And so if your goals are to appear unthreatening and to placate people and to calm people down, (laughs) maybe precisely what you want to be doing is using a lot of ums and ahs and likes and up talks and things that that calm people down or that seem polite. Mm -hmm. Being polite is is not a bad goal in many circumstances. And it can take many forms. And it can take many forms. Um, Or that some things are characteristic of really not knowing what you're going to say. And that not knowing what you're going to say or sounding like you don't know what you're going to say is in some cases inconsistent with what people's goals are. Exactly. But the way I want to to slice it is to fight against the attitude that there's only one proper way of saying things rather than a whole bunch of things that can be consistent with different types of goals. I understand exactly what you mean. Gretchen, thank you for this wide-ranging conversation. I knew that you and I would have a lot to talk about, and I really look forward to your as-yet-untitled book. And I would love to talk to you again on the show in the future if I am ever hosting it again. But thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. It's been been a pleasure to be on. Tell us your thoughts about the show. And by the way, folks, the toast piece that Gretchen referred to is called A Linguist Explains Emoji and What Language Death Actually Looks Like. And you can find Gretchen on Twitter at GretchenAMCC. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The show is edited by Efim Bronfman. I'm John McWhorter. Thanks so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks. Actually, Efim Bronfman is in the middle of a world tour right now. Uh, but Yefim Shapiro is humbly at your service. <laughs> um, um, should I just say that, or can that be patched in? <laughs> sure. <laughs> this show was edited by Yefim Shapiro. Shapiro.